thank you, dads, for being who you are and doing your part. And I commend all of you here today through the message and uh, the sermon and, and just uh, this quick moment here to step up your game and let's do even better in, in this uh, coming year to uh, be the dads that we've been called to be. Let's stay in Proverbs chapter 6 and we'll read from verse 20 down through verse 23. We'll read these verses responsibly. I'll read um, the even verses alone. We'll read the odd verses the odd-numbered verses together. The Bible says, beginning in verse 20, My son, keep thy father's commandments, commandment, and forsake not the law of thy mother. Together, verse 21, Bind them continually upon thy neck, about thy neck. When thou goest, it shall lead thee. When thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. And when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. This title of the sermon this morning is this, Keeping the Commandment of My Father. Keeping the Commandments of My Father. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, lift up dads today and honor them, we want to make sure we take a moment to honor our Heavenly Father. And Lord, some don't have a relationship with an earthly dad, but if we know salvation through Christ, we can have a relationship with a Heavenly Dad. And so, Lord... um, Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for loving us and caring for us and providing for us and all of the things that we would expect from a responsible earthly father. You are that and so many times over again. So thank you for that. Today as we look at your word and we look at various principles in your word, may you challenge our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. For those of you who know me, uh, or have heard me preach uh, a lot, you know that I was raised in a Christian home. That gets referenced quite a bit, my upbringing and various stories from growing up in a Christian home. Many of you, uh, well, the truth is, it's easy to honor my father, because my father is an honorable man. Many of you here today have or had a father that lived honorably, just like mine. There is plenty of good that he taught you, not only with his words, but also by, by his example. Some of you here may be like my father, my dad. Uh, my grandfather or my dad's dad, um, he didn't live such an honorable life. May I say that my dad, through his actions, has chosen a path that greatly honors a dad who did not live honorably. Whether my grandfather is in heaven or hell, I promise, I promise you there is no one prouder of the path that my dad is on today than his dad, whether he's in heaven or hell. Let me tell you my dad's story. My father is the youngest of um, four brothers. There's four boys in his family. They're all exactly one year apart. They all had the same dad. And when my dad was born, uh, they were really hoping that he would be a girl. They didn't do any gender tests. I think, I think those were around back then. I imagine they were, but uh, his mom didn't want to know. And when my, uh, my uh, grandmother came around, I, I guess she had a cesarean. When she came around and was able to understand what was going on, everyone was sitting in the room crying. 
And they said, did, did something happen to the baby? They said, no, he's just another boy. And so, uh, but um, he was the youngest of um, four boys, and these were rough and tumble boys. His dad, my grandfather, was a uh, semi-pro boxer, and he dabbled in boxing and got in and out of it uh, quite a bit. And my, my grandfather, uh, Lejeune, he suffered through much of his life with depression and drug abuse. He, um, uh, uh, after uh, uh, some time of my dad being alive, it was discovered that uh, my grandfather uh, was having an affair on my grandmother, and this absolutely devastated her. Just ripped, it just ripped their marriage apart. My grandmother uh, was a very vengeful person. She didn't let things go easily. So when an, when an affair happened, it was the beginning of the end of their marriage and just a matter of time until they were separated and then divorced. My uh, grandfather's life spiraled out of control after the divorce. And sometime later, when my dad was an eight-year-old boy, news came that his dad had been found dead in a car along a, a country road. He had put a bullet through his head and killed himself. That's tough news for an eight-year-old to get. Your dad's taking his own life. Um, my grandmother was pretty broken already over the affair and a rough childhood, but even more broken and abused over the, over the suicide of her ex-husband and also watching what it did to her four boys. So my grandmother would spend the next couple of decades really all the way till she died, bouncing in and out of marriages. I think my grandmother was married like seven times in her life. When my dad was a 15-year-old boy, one, and I learned this story just a couple of weeks ago. I took a trip with my dad to Louisiana, back to his roots. And um, along our trip, he shared this story with me. It's a phenomenal story, powerful story. And it's the story, the backstory of how he got saved. My dad was a 15-year-old boy. Uh, his three older brothers were out of the house. And uh, it was a Saturday morning. He was laying on the couch watching TV, and he could hear his mom and the, the marriage she was in that time, his stepdad. And he said about this particular stepdad, he said, when he was in a good mood, he was the nicest man you would ever want to meet. Nicest man you'd ever want to meet. He would give you anything. He would take you and spend money on you. Uh, he'd pour his time out to you. He was a great dad. But when he was in a bad mood, he was more, he was, his temper tantrums were more childish than the most out of control, out of control child that you've ever seen. He's laying there on the couch watching TV and he can hear uh, his uh, mom and his stepdad in, a, in the back bedroom and they uh, begin to argue. And the volume of the argument was low and the argument was rather tame and he can hear things slowly beginning to heat up and things got to a place where there was a yelling back and forth and, and, and furniture was beginning to crash uh, around the room and all of a sudden his mother came running down the hallway and she said to my dad, she said, Tim, put your shoes on right now. Put your shoes on right now. we got to go right now. And he could tell that she was absolutely terrified of what was coming. And so my dad popped up the couch and within seconds slipped the shoes on his feet and
and she was fumbling around uh, uh, to get her keys out of her purse. And they went running out of the door and running out to the carport and into the car they went, an old beat up car they owned, uh, uh, and stuck the key in the ignition. And, 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 and as she was starting it, he came walking out of the door with one of those old school uh, heavy duty glass ashtrays. You know the ones I'm talking about, the glass ashtrays. And he came and he was running out the car and he's yelling at her and, and, and she's trying to put it in reverse and he gets within about 10 feet of that car and he takes that thing like a hockey puck and he slings it as hard as he can at the windshield. And when that thing hit the windshield, the whole windshield just cracked and spidered and it looked as though it was going to fall in. It was, he said, the most extreme spidered windshield that he had seen before or since. And they put it in reverse and they backed out of there and down the road they went with him chasing them down the road. And you can imagine the heart racing. They went to uh, the police station and reported it and got a restraining order. And that same day, she picked up the newspaper and found another apartment on the other side of town and got the police to go back to the house with her and had him removed so that she could gather all of their things. And by the same day, by that evening, they were moved out of their current residence and into this new apartment and trying to figure out how to get everything where it goes. My uh, One of my dad's older brothers was a pest and a menace and, and was arrested a lot as a, as, a, as a boy and would cause great damage to rentals. And they were evicted out of many homes because of him and, uh, um, uh, and just all kinds of various domestic disputes and things. And so uh, they knew how to move and they knew how to move quick and they knew how to get house shop set up quickly. And so uh, here it is the evening now. It's a summer uh, evening. Sun stayed out late. And these people come running by his home. And he, he said their apartment was kind of in an odd place because it was in an industrial park. And there weren't really a lot of other apartments there at that time. And so there weren't any neighborhood kids to play with. It was a sort of an emergency landing spot. So to see people come running down the road was odd. He asked one of them, he said, uh, where are you guys from? And the man uh, pointed up the hill. There was a health club. He said, we belong to that health club and we're out for a run. And so my dad walked inside and he said to his mom, he said, um, do you think I could join the health club? Well, she knew how traumatized that her 15-year-old son was. And she felt awful about what had happened. And she knew she shouldn't have been in a marriage with this guy. And, and so she didn't ask how much it costs. She just said, sure, go ahead and join. So she, uh, he picked up the phone on the, ne- the next day, being a Sunday, he picked up the phone and he called. And, you know, back in the day before cell phones, everything was a landline. So the phone rings inside the health uh, club, and the, um, uh, the man that picked the phone uh, was a man from a church. On Sundays, the health, health club was rented out to Calvary Heights Baptist Church. And so the man picks up the phone. And he says, Calvary Heights Baptist Church and spa. And he says, spa. He said, oh, I'm just teasing you. He said, but uh, on Sundays, we rent this building out and we have church. And um, he said, oh, well, I live right down the hill. And I was trying to get hold of the health club so I I could uh, see about uh, uh, what, what time you guys open and what the, the cost of it is and gather the information so I'm ready to come up and join. And he said, well, hey, listen, uh, that they'll be here tomorrow, but why don't you come on up and and have church with us. And my dad said, church at a health club? What do you guys do? I mean, do you like sit on the weight benches? And he said, yeah. 
He said, our pastor stands up on top of this big dumbbell and uh, this uh, uh, th- these weights, and he, he preaches from off the weights. It's spectacular. you got to come see it. And he's trying to, you know, try, trying to sell this thing, and my dad wasn't buying. He said, no, I'm, I'm good. He said, I'll, I'll stop by Monday, thanks. And, and he hung up. Well, he went out his back door, and he looked back up there at the health spot, and he noticed there were outdoor basketball hoops in the back of the parking lot of that health spot. He had nowhere else to go. There were no neighborhood kids to, 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 to try to hang around with. It was a long walk to anywhere no, notable. So he uh, got the basketball out of his bedroom and he walked up the hill and he went into the back of the health club and he just started to shoot uh, baskets. And one of the men who uh, were there early helping to set up the church came out of the back and he said, hey, let me talk to you for a minute. And he uh, took him through the scriptures and showed him that he was a sinner, and my dad knew that he was a sinner, and he showed him uh, the wreck and ravage of sin and the consequences of sin and the price of sin being hell. And my dad knew, uh, especially after the events that had taken place the day before, he knew that he needed something different. He knew that sin just brings pain and hurt. And so the man then explained that Jesus Christ had come and God on earth had died for his sins on the cross. Just a few short minutes later, my dad bowed his head and put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ as saving. God used the temper tantrum of an adult man with a violent nature from a bad marriage to put my dad in a spot where he would be available to be saved. And that's how God works. He can take our sin or the sins of others and he can use it for good in someone else's life. Um, my dad got saved and he went ahead and came in and went to church. My dad was a typical 1970s hippie. Hair, and I, it's hard for me to picture that because I've always known my dad to have the same haircut and clean, cleaned up look. And, but he was a 70s hippie, hair down past his shoulders, and he probably had some kind of a free love or peace sign, or marijuana plant or something on his shirt, I don't know. Uh, but uh, he came into church and the other teenagers in that church, they were cleaned up. Many of them were wearing a shirt and tie, and they looked like church kids. My dad was definitely the outsider, but they didn't treat him that way. They made my dad feel like he was part of the, of the group, part of the crowd. My dad has told me many times, he said, if they not treated me right, I would have never come back. I'd be saved, but I'd be living out of church. He said, they invited me to come back that night. They had some things going on for their evening service. So I came back, and then I came back the next week, and the next week, and the next week, and Then I heard about another area church that had their own private Christian school. And I found out what the cost of it was, so I got a job that summer and I began to save money. And I went to that private Christian school my junior and senior year. I paid my way through with no help from my family. And then after he graduated from high school, uh, he went off to a Christian Bible college. And he sought to do what was right by what the Bible said and where the Lord was leading him in his spirit. All through this time of his junior and senior year and all the way up even through his adulthood, into the time I was born, his mother and his brothers perceived him as gullible. Gullible. Gullible for going to church. Gullible for following this religious nonsense as they would label it or deem it. He was gullible to believe that the Bible was true. Um, and I've got to say, I'm thankful that my dad was gullible enough to believe that the Bible was true. 
I'm glad he was gullible enough to choose a wife based on godly principles and not just not just some uh, hormonal throb, but based on um, uh, godly principles. My dad, I'm glad he was gullible enough to actually change his lifestyle when it was contrary to the scriptures. He was gullible enough to have a marriage modeled after the Bible. He was gullible enough to raise his children to love God and honor their parents. And I would say that my father's gullibility has worked out quite well for him. Back in Proverbs 6, Solomon tells his son, he says, he says, my commandments to you, uh, Rehoboam, my commandments are a light, are a lamp to life's dark path. Life's dark path. Now, if Rehoboam would obey his father's commandments, then he would have no problem navigating his life and his future. But if Rehoboam ignores his father's commandments... He's going to stumble down the path and experience a lot of pain and hurt. And he said, Rehoboam, here are my commandments. They will act as a lamp that will light the way as you walk through life and show you where you are supposed to walk. And even better yet, show you where you're not supposed to walk. It will show you the path that will lead you to safety and a close walk with God and a strong marriage and a strong home and a strong career path. And if you don't take my commandments and you don't use them as a life lamp, it's going to be a blind walk down a dark path of stumbling and pain and hurt. Now, my father, please hear this. My father had no earthly dad to teach him how to love and follow God. Didn't have one. Didn't have one. Instead, what he did is he clung to his heavenly father. And he allowed that father to guide him along the path. I'd say to you this morning, if your father is honorable and has taught you Judeo-Christian ethics, then allow his words to be a lamp to your feet. If your father uh, has not been honorable or does not love God or the Bible and has not taught you uh, the right path, uh, then allow your heavenly father, your Abba, Daddy father, to guide you in that absence. This morning is part of Father's Day. I'd like to bring a message to do as God has commanded us to do in Ephesians 6, uh, 2. I'd like to honor my father in his life. I will draw out the good things from my father's life. Let me be clear up front that my father was was not and is not a perfect person. I could get up here and tell you struggles that he has and consistencies in his life because I was a private eye investigator for 18 years. And I saw everything, the good and the bad. But I'll say this about my dad. He worked hard. He tried. He was a survivor of sorts. He was a generational game changer. He took a wreck of a life that had been handed him. And he made something beautiful out of it. You might be here today and you might be blaming a rough past as the reason why you are becoming a failure in life. Or you have become a failure in life. I'm here today to lift up the life of my father, not to praise him, but to show you that there are no excuses. No matter how rough it is, 
God can take you and do something great with you. But you must choose His life lamps, His commandments. You must choose to use them appropriately. I'd like to highlight five life lamps that my father both gave us as children verbally and lived out both publicly and privately. He gave them to us both verbally and by example. And he lived them out both publicly and privately. Let's consider this topic of keeping the commandments of my father. Life lamp number one, be faithful to church. Be faithful to church. Now, we've spent three of the last four Sunday mornings talking about the importance and structure and the mission of the church in the life of the Christian. Now, again, my, my, my father's family labeled him gullible. But he was gullible enough to believe exactly what Hebrews 10.25 says. You all know what Hebrews 10.25 says? Let me read it for you. Even if you know it, it's good to hear Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, or as some do, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. What does that mean? That means when your church has a general meeting, you're not to forsake it. You're to be there. Now, look, I know that doesn't fit the culture, and I know that doesn't fit a whole lot of schedules. But my dad just said, look, my time belongs to the Lord, and if he's telling me that I'm not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, we're going to church, and we're going to church all the time. I think back to me being a a four-year-old boy or a three-year-old boy, and I don't have a lot of memories from back then, but you know when something happens to you over and over and over and over again, uh, specific to that era of your life, you remember it. And so we lived in a, a little rental in Mississippi, and we would climb in the car, and we would back out of the uh, the uh, driveway there and onto the road, and we'd get going down the road. And I was sitting, always sat behind my dad in the, in he, uh, the, the driver's side back seat, and my brother Tim would sit in the middle, and then my sister Hannah was in a car seat uh, on the passenger side rear. And every single time, it was the same habit. We'd get in the car, put our seatbelts on, Start pulling down the road. I'm here. Tim, we called him Timmy back then. Timmy's here. Hannah's over there. And Timmy would speak up and say this. As a two-year-old boy, he'd say, where we going? And my mom would say, to church. And he would say, oh. And so every time we got in the car, it seemed like we went anywhere. Where we going? To church. Oh. Sunny night, Wednesday night. Where are we going? To church. Oh! You know, I'm 34 years old. I cannot ever in my life, ever in my life, remember a time where my dad missed church. Ever. Unless he was feverishly sick. I'm talking about vacations. I'm talking about uh, odd, weird circumstances. Sunny morning, sunny night, Wednesday night. He was gullible enough to believe that if the Bible says you're to be in church, then you're to be in church. Um, You say, well, yeah, but I know a little more about you than you're letting on, Pastor. Your dad worked in church ministry. 
He was obligated to be there. That's part of his job description. And I'd say, yep. Two things on that. One, he chose that career path because he loved church. Two, my dad went above and beyond his job description. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, my dad uh, worked uh, the bus ministry. He had a CDL. He would drive the bus, and he was the bus captain. You have to understand how raucous and rowdy these kids were. Back in the 1980s in uh, Mississippi, uh, it was far more racially divided than it is today. And um, the deacons of our church, they did not want, as they called them, colored people coming into the church. And so uh, the deacons, uh, Mississippi men, very racist, uh, would not allow that to happen. And the pastor, that was not a battle he wanted to fight. And so my dad in the morning would get up and get ready. And in the Mississippi heat uh, during the summers, and uh, we would, uh, I'd get on the bus with him. And we would go to all of the poor white kid neighborhoods. And we'd pick up all the white kids and put them on the bus. And he would run 30 or 40 kids, sometimes more, every week on that bus. And then after church service was over, he would load them all back up on a bus. And he would drive them back to their neighborhoods. And he'd drop them off. And after he dropped off the last white kid, he would drive over to the other side of the tracks uh, to the black neighborhoods or the colored neighborhoods. And all the black and Hispanic minority children, they would begin to get on his bus and he would put 30, 40, 50 of them on his bus and he'd drive back at the church about 2.30. They'd get off his bus. They'd go in. And this was done behind the deacon's backs, by the way. They'd go into the, uh, uh, the, the, the school building and they would uh, have a church service for the colored kids. And after that was over, they'd get back on his bus and he'd drive back and he'd drop them off and he'd get back to church just in time for the six o'clock church service. No one made him do that. You know where I was while he was doing all that? I was with him. Every Saturday, we'd spend two or three hours visiting all of the white children that rode the bus. And then we'd spend another two or three hours visiting all the colored children that rode his bus. I remember once my dad told this little girl, this little, um, you know, this little black girl, she was on the fence about coming. And my dad, I was like nine years old, I was about Matthew's age, and my dad looked at her and said, Do you think my son's cute? And she's like, Mm-hmm. He said to her, I tell you what, if you come to church tomorrow, I'll let you kiss him on the cheek. I said, Dad? I said, I'm not riding the bus tomorrow. (laughs) You can't make me. (laughs) Dads, I'm all for you spending time with your kids. You need to do it. I look back on my years... I remember Saturday mornings, every Saturday, getting up, going to the church. We'd have bus breakfast meeting. We'd hop in the car. Public radio would come on. We'd listen to Click and Clack, the Tappet Brothers, some car, radio, uh, car talk, and we'd visit. And oh, the memories that I have of watching my dad make an eternal difference. Faithful to church. Look, look back at Proverbs chapter 6. Look at verse number 16. It says there, These six things doth the Lord hate, ye seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. These are the seven sins on God's hate list. I preached a series about that 
sometime back on a sunny night. My dad, and, and these are verses are found right before the life lamp lesson of Proverbs 6, 20 through 23. My father was smart enough to know that sin was lurking in the shadows to sink the, his life and the life of his children. And he knew that if he could get me to a good church, he knew that if he could get me to a church that would teach me to do right, that would give him an edge in keeping me away from these things. Life lamp number one, be faithful to church. Are you faithful to church? Life lamp number two, finish the job. Finish the job. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. Uh, well, I'll, I'll read it for you. By the way, this is coming from the same hand that wrote the book of Proverbs. Solomon also wrote Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. And it says this, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. Here um, we're told, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. One phrase that's outlawed in the Lejeune house, I'm talking about this Lejeune house, is that's good enough. No, no, no. It's either done all the way or you don't do it at all. We don't look at a half-effort job and say, well, that's good enough. Get it done and do it all the way. Do it right. Um, I think back to the grueling days of Bible college. I went to Bible college. And I worked my way through and I graduated debt-free. Thank God I didn't have any student loans. That did not come without its, its price tag, though. Um, I worked a full-time job an hour from the college campus where I lived in the dorms. Um, Forty hours a week plus an hour drive there and back. Um, my friend that's in service with me today, he, he carpooled with me uh, through a portion of that so he can testify to what I'm saying is true. The weekend ministry was grueling. They had us involved in ministry, uh, and it was volunteer, but the, the peer pressure push was all day Saturday, all day Sunday. So you're going from early in the morning with classes to work, getting back late at night, and then you got all day Saturday, all day Sunday. Saturday, you're visiting uh, your route uh, or uh, your ministry, the people that are involved in your ministry. Sunday, you're, you're ministering and serving all day. And uh, so I was always dead to the world, tired. The other thing that I suffered with uh, uh, with that was that it took me five years to complete a four-year degree. I failed a whole lot of classes because I was just flat-out exhausted all the time, and I'd oversleep classes, um, uh, struggled there. And uh, so my grades struggled. I was the valedictorian in my class in high school, and uh, four of us went to the same college uh, uh, for uh, after high school. I had the worst GPA of the four, hands down, going away. They didn't work. I worked. They were able to stay back and study. So my grades suffered. Uh, my, my body suffered. One thing was constant for me in college. I never... Never considered throwing in the towel and quitting. Was not even on the radar. No matter how tired I was, no matter how exhausted I was, no matter how many times I had to take the same silly history class over and over and over again because I couldn't get the um, presidents of the United States memorized in perfect order. If you got one wrong, you failed the class. No matter how many times I failed that class, I never considered quitting. Not once. In orientation... My freshman year, Floyd, you probably remember this. We were told that only one-fourth of us would graduate and the rest of us would quit. And I thought, no, that cannot be. 
You tell me all these good guys and good girls here that are here giving their life to Jesus, three-fourths of them are going to throw in the towel and quit before graduation? Well, over the next five years, I watched my peers and many of my close friends. You know what they did when things got tough? They quit. They quit. You know, I, I had a moment of clarity while, uh, while dwelling on this one day in college. I remember asking myself, why is it that I'm not tempted with quitting like these other kids? And then it dawned on me. It's because of my dad. I, I picture in my mind right now a moment of me standing in our backyard. I was a young preteen young man. I'm... I was covered in sweat. The Mississippi heat, it was 100 degrees outside. I was dehydrated. I was exhausted. And I was 90% done raking up the grass clippings in the yard. I was getting ready to walk away and quit. And my dad walks up to me. He can see the battle in my head. And he puts his finger out and he says this, Richard, finish... Of the job. If I heard my dad say, Richard, finish of the job once, I heard it a thousand times. When we started a sports team, we finished it out. We weren't allowed to quit. When we started a plate of food, we finished it, whether we liked it or not. When we started a chore at home, we finished it and we did it all the way. When we volunteered to help with something at the church... We finished it and saw it through. I remember uh, we, uh, my dad was short on money, so he'd take us to help him cut grass. Uh, and I learned a lot of my work ethic from cutting grass in the Mississippi heat. Well, our music director had us cutting his, like, four-acre lawn. And so, you know, my dad's riding around on his John Deere riding mower on the shady part of the yard. And he's got me and my brother with push mowers. And they, they didn't have the self-propelled back then. If they did, my dad wouldn't have bought them anyway. Uh, uh, they didn't have the self-propelled. And he has us cutting out in the non-shaded area. And, man, we're pushing back and forth. I, got, I had to have been 10 years old. My brother's doing, uh, doing it as well. He had a push mower. And I remember feeling lightheaded and, and, and tired and, and thirsty. And so I said, Tim, let's go inside and let's get a drink from Mrs. Gardner. She was a sweet old lady. So we went in and used the restroom and came out. And she said, here, here's a big glass of ice water. I said, oh, yes. She said, you want to sit down for a minute? I thought, I probably shouldn't. Sure. Well, 45 minutes later, there is this bang on the door. And my dad reprimanded us. I mean, reprimanded us in front of Mrs. Gardner. What are you doing leaving me out here to cut the grass all by myself? You get out here and you finish the job. And I'm thankful for a dad that told me, look, when things get tough, you don't quit. This wasn't just something he said. This was something that he lived. you the type of person that quits when things get tough? Do you see things to the end? My dad was just gullible enough to believe that if the Bible says that a man's to be found faithful and he's to be thorough in his work and he's to do whatever he finds with all his might, that he might as well just do it and life would turn out okay. I guess my dad's gullibility has paid off. Life lamp number one, be faithful to church. Life lamp number two, 
finish the job? What other lamps did my dad hand me to help me as an adult man uh, navigate through life? Life lamp number three, fidelity in marriage. Fidelity in marriage. Chapter 6, verse 20 through 23, you find the verse about the law being a lamp and the uh, commandment or the law being a light and the commandment being a lamp. Right after that, look at verse 24. Look what the purpose of that is. It says, to keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. Lest not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. For by means of a, another adjective here, whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom? And his clothes not be burned. Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? So he that goeth in to his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her, shall not be innocent. Here in Proverbs, we finish this truth about the commandment of a father and the law of a mother. We find that, rather, sandwiched between a passage about the seven sins on God's hate list and the slippery slope of a whorish woman. I don't need to dive into details, but we all know how perverted our world is, don't we? We know that, don't we? Can I tell you it wasn't a whole lot better in the 1970s? How many of you lived and you remember the 1970s? You know what the 1970s was? I wasn't there, but I've read up on it. I've talked to people who were there. Um, it was hippies. It was Volkswagen vans. It was free love. It was psychedelic music, and it was pot smoking. All that was the rage. Now, that's when my dad was a teenager, the 1970s. On top of that, his dad had left a model of falling to a Proverbs 6, whorish woman. My dad had to look at his past, and he had to decide that he was going to trailblaze a new path for himself. Not a path of immorality, but rather a path of morality. Unfortunately, many people coming from homes like my father's lap into a marriage much like their parents and repeat the same cycle of history. What has my dad done? Well, my dad decided that he was going to break the generational curse. Some of you in here today you have a history of immorality. Don't repeat that. Break the curse. Stand up to your past and say, I'm going to fight every urge in my body to copy the example of my father, grandfather, great-grandfather, etc. Not here. Not me. I'm going to have a marriage that works. I'm going to have a marriage that pleases the Lord. I'm going, and if you're single, I'm going to pick a spouse that honors the Lord and someone who lives by godly principles. My parents have now been married for 35 and a half years. God's given them seven beautiful children. Well, six and then me. And what I saw out of my parents was love for each other. What I saw out of my parents was a commitment to keep themselves only for each other. I, I can remember being in elementary school, in elementary school and middle school, and hearing the kids at the table say things like, yeah, my parents are getting separated or my parents are getting a divorce. And I remember thinking, and they would say that always with great, great 
angst or sadness or, or, or hurt in their voice. But I can remember sitting there thinking to myself, and I was wise enough not to say this to them, but my parents will never get a divorce. Now, let me tell you, my parents had some squabbles along the way, and I witnessed some of them. I've learned later that my parents had their marriage tested a couple of times privately, very strong, not by either one of their indiscretions with people of the opposite gender, of their own opposite genders, but just marriage... Everybody's marriage. You've been married any length of time. You know there are times you're just miserable in marriage. And you just got to battle through. My parents faced some times like that. But I was certain my parents were never going to get a divorce. I would think to myself, I would think in my mind's eye, sitting at that lunch table in school, my mom and dad embraced and kissed each other as my dad left for school this morning. Yeah, their, their marriage is fine. My parents will never get a divorce. Well, I'm sure that my father talked to me about marital fidelity along life's path. This principle, this life lamp has been lived out in front of me by him. This commandment lamp, this life lamp was given to me by him in the way he modeled marital fidelity. And I'm here to tell you that whether your parents are giving you that lamp or not, you have a responsibility to give that one to the next generation. Now, I guess my father was gullible, but he was gullible enough to believe that if he followed the biblical model of marriage, that it might just lead to a long, healthy marriage. Call him gullible, but God's word has won out out again. Let me hasten here. Life lamp number four, my, my father handed me. Focus on the souls around you. Focus on the souls around you. You in Proverbs 6, if you don't mind, turn over to Proverbs chapter 11. Look with me at verse number 30. The goal here today is not to glorify man. It's to honor my dad. You say, well, pastor, what are you trying to glorify then? I'm trying to glorify biblical truth lived out by my dad. But God be the glory. Great things he has done. God's word changes lives. My father's life is just an example of that. Look at verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. The rest of the verse. And he that winneth souls is wise. That's kind of a peculiar phrase. Winneth souls. So to win something or win someone, you must convince them. Win them over. What are we trying to win souls over to? Well, we're trying to win souls over to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that Jesus lived, he died, he buried, he was risen again. And the purpose of his death was to be a sacrifice for all of humanity and their sin, to rescue them from uh, uh, the destruction and damnation of sin. Now, there's something, let me just say, there's something quite refreshing about being around a first generational Christian or a Christian that's been saved in their adult life. I get to witness this with my wife. She was saved as an adult young lady. And I get to witness this with some of you here today who were saved as an adult. Here's here's what happens when uh, a first generational Christian grabs hold of a Bible truth. They go live it out. And the joy that is inside of them and the joy that's written all over their face while they're living it out, it is awesome. It is awesome. When my father was 16, he'd only been saved just a few short months, maybe a year. 
he met a man named Jerry Pertell. Jerry Pertell. He is affectionately known by many as Uncle Jerry. Uncle Jerry is an evangelist to children. He and his wife, Vicki, have given their entire 45-year ministry uh, to seeing little boys and girls all over the southeast come to know Jesus as their personal Savior. Uncle Jerry took my father in and challenged him. You know Uncle Jerry, he preached my ordination service uh, back in 2010, and he, he's fired up about everything all the time. The man has passion for God and souls just dripping off of him. He, he was sitting in a car with my dad one night. My dad's 16. My dad had to force his way in to Uncle Jerry's life because Uncle Jerry had a wall up toward teenagers. My dad said to Uncle Jerry, he said, why is it that you uh, are keeping me and so many other teenagers at an arm distance? I don't get it. You're so loving and giving with your wife to kids to give them the gospel, but you just seem to want to keep me out. And, uh, and Uncle Jerry told him, he said, I just don't believe that teenagers can be serious enough for a long enough period of time to actually serve God and love Him with their whole hearts. He said, Tim, I've worked with teens and I'm telling you, they're only concerned about girls or or guys, or, 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 or chasing the latest fads. He said they don't care about giving their heart all the way to Jesus. My dad said this. He said, I'm going to prove to you that this teenager can be serious about loving and serving Jesus. And Uncle Jerry said, all right, we'll see. We'll see. Uncle Jerry would open his heart and take my dad into his life, and he would treat him like his own son. My dad fell in love with sharing the saving grace of Jesus with anyone who would listen. The next summer, when my dad was 17, he, he went out with a friend, and they saw, in one summer, doing work in neighborhoods and, and speaking with children and having backyard Bible clubs with children... And one summer, my dad and his partner would see over 500 children come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know what happened? My dad fell in love. Fell in love with taking the gospel and winning over someone's soul for the Lord. And I, I got to watch my dad, uh, uh, as a young man, lead thousands. I've seen my father lead thousands of people uh, uh, to Jesus Christ. And I can remember being that little boy going out with him on Saturdays for five and six hours and visiting uh, uh, a bus house. I can remember standing uh, there on the porch. And, and I'm, I'm six years old, seven years old, and I'm playing, and I'm going over, and I'm picking up the flower pot, and I'm messing with it. I'm getting in the port swing and I'm swinging on it. And I remember walking away from the door after my dad had led him to the Lord saying, you stand still or I'm going to whip your backside. By the time I was 12 years old and I led my first soul to the Lord, I had watched my dad lead hundreds of people to Christ. He handed me the lamp of focusing not on someone's height or weight or skin tone or culture or background, but you look through and past all of that and you see a soul that needs Jesus and you love them you give them the love of Jesus life lamp number five financial responsibility turn over to Proverbs 3 with me I'll be very 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 quick on this one Proverbs 3 look with me at verse number 5 
It says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And lean not unto thine own wisdom or understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. If you're a new Christian, you've not memorized those verses yet. Work to memorize those. Powerful verses. Look at verse 7. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thy increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. You're to honor the Lord with your substance, your possessions. You're to give the first fruits or the first percentage of your increase or your finances. For much of my childhood, money was very tight. I've shared stories about how frugal we were forced to live along the way. But as a small child, I was totally oblivious to uh, the money uh, situation in our home. However, when I became a preteen and then a teenager, I became cognizant of just how poor we were. I, I, can, I can still see my dad sitting down every month at the kitchen table, or rather at the dining room table. It was in a little tiny house. Back when I was little, I thought it was big, but going back now, see, it was a tiny house. He's sitting there at that table, and he's got all of the bills laid out. This is back before the Internet, okay? Bills all laid out. He's got his checkbook there, and he's trying to figure out what's in the ledger and and what he has in bills and what he needs to pay and what maybe he can call and push back a month. And he's going over them, and he's looking at his income, and my dad had this nervous habit. He has a whole lot more hair than I do. I won't do this, but he would run his hand through his thick hair, and he would moan, oh, oh, I can still see him doing it now. And I remember when I was a little guy, I'd look at my mom and say, what's, what's dad doing? What's got him so upset? And she'd laugh and say, he's trying to figure out how to pay the bills. My dad would pick up side work, the cutting the lawns, the various things. You know, one thing, one thing my father was consistent on is every two weeks, when that offering plate came down our pew, the envelope went in the plate. Now, when I was a kid, okay, Dad just put a piece of paper in the plate, whatever. But when I was a preteen and a teenager, and I knew that we didn't have any money, and I'm sitting between him and the end of the pew, you say, well, why were you there? Because I was bad in church. (laughs) My dad wasn't going to let us sit between him and Mom. He held Mom's hand. If we tried to sit between him and Mom, he called us homewreckers. So I had to sit between the end of the pew and him. And he would squeeze my knee real hard if I was misbehaving. So I remember sitting there, and I remember knowing we don't have any money. But watching Dad every two weeks like clockwork, like old faithful, drop that tithe check, that offering check on the plate. You know, things have worked out for my parents. They live in a middle to upper middle class home. My mom drives a nice minivan. A middle class type middle van, uh, minivan. My dad drives a pretty nice four door Toyota pickup truck. He's doing all right for himself. Because he was faithful to the Lord, God's been faithful to him. We watch God perform financial miracle after financial miracle in our home. You know, my, my grandmother and my uncle was called my dad gullible. 
But my dad was just gullible enough to believe that if he honored the Lord with his substance, the Lord would increase him. And oh, how God has increased him. Are my parents rich? No. No, but they're doing just fine. Their needs are met. This morning, I honor my father by pointing out the life lamps that he's given me, by teaching me and modeling for me his commandments. Today, my dad honors his dad. No, not for the same reasons and not the same way. My dad honors his dad because he has chosen to forgive his father and his sins, and he has chosen to honor him by choosing an honorable path for himself. Are you living by the same biblical life lamps that I was given? Are you faithful to church? To every service? Do you finish what you start? Or are you a quitter? Are you faithful in your marriage? Are you committed? Do you focus on lost souls? Do you even care about people's eternal destination? Are you fiscally, financially responsible? Are you faithful and trusting? If you're a dad here today, let me, let me encourage you to be a dad that gives your boys, your girls, life lamps that will guide them. If you're here today and you're hoping to one day be a dad, don't worry about your past. Be a dad that pleases the Lord. And if you're a young lady here today that's unmarried, will you seek out a man who will blaze a path of righteousness in your home? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. How many here today say, Pastor, I know for sure that when I die, that Jesus has forgiven my sins. Oh, I'm not going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. I'm going to go to heaven because what Jesus did for me. Pastor, here's my hand. I know I'm going to heaven. Jesus has saved my soul. Would you raise your hand? Testimony of that. How many here today say, Pastor Lejeune, I don't know exactly what that means. Pastor, it may be that if I die, God does not give me access to heaven. Will you allow God's grace to do for you what it did for my dad when he was a 15-year-old boy? Will you allow him to save you? Will you allow him to wash away your sins? Put you on a path to heaven? Adopt you into his family? Is there one here today say, Pastor, I don't know if I die where I'm going to go. Is that you? I don't want to embarrass you. That's why we have our heads bowed. But I do want to pray for you. If you're here today and you don't know you're going to heaven, would you just slip up your hand so I can pray for you? Is there one? Is there one? Who here today would say, Pastor, something that was said today has challenged my heart. There is an area of biblical truth that needs to be elevated in my life. Would you pray for me? If that's you, would you slip up your hand? There's an area of biblical truth that needs to be elevated in my life. Your dad, maybe you need to be a better dad. You're just a Christian person. You need to be a better Christian person. And how many here today say, Pastor, I'm carrying some troubles in my life, and I just need to know that my pastor's praying for me. If that's you, would you slip up your hand so I can pray for you? Lord, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for those who seek to live it and a literal interpretation of it. And Lord, the great, tremendous generational impact it has. 
Help us, Lord, to commit to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. The uh, piano is playing. The altar's open. I encourage you to come and kneel, talk to the Lord. We have several lined up to be baptized today. If that's you, if you would come forward at this time as well so that we can help you with that.